Steve, happy Monday. How are you, man? I am fantastic. I'm uh, hopefully recovering from a fun <laughs> Sunday night of <laughs> fireworks and uh, hanging out with the kids and you know, maybe drink a beer, have a whiskey or two. Yeah, I feel like uh, every Monday minute we're doing recently, we're pre-recording because there's always some sort of like hitch in the schedule. Yeah, it's summertime, man. Stuff gets busy. Yeah. Well, yeah, hopefully everyone had a good fourth and has another day off here. If you're listening to this on the day it's released of July 5th, um, as always, guys, thank you so much for the questions. And that's what we'll dive into uh, today is some good listener questions. Obviously, July, it's like, wow, <laughs> September yeah. is going to be here quick. Uh, we see it every year just from uh, even before EXO, like going back to SNS Archery, Steve, like you see that demand pick up literally right after the 4th of July when everybody's like, oh crap, I better get serious about getting ready for hunting season. <laughs> yeah. I think procrastination is human nature, right? So uh, yeah, there's a very distinct, the Monday after the 4th of July is like, you can just see that pattern year after year after year of uh, all of a sudden our sales just kind of overnight double and then just stay on that path all the way through um frankly till like september 10th you know and then then it slows back down so yeah that said this year uh unlike some other summers where we're trying to you know keep everything in stock we our team's been crushing it to keep up with demand and so things are in stock if you guys happen to be looking at packs still you can get stuff shipped within a couple days which is great it's um yeah it's pretty cool to have the company where you know, it's taken eight years to get here, but things are so dialed in that, uh, yeah, we've just able to predict inventory and, and, uh, purchase it, get it, build it, have it ready. We've got such an awesome team of guys. Uh, obviously we're a small group, six, seven people, but, uh, just knocking it out. Everything's in stock and shipping within 24 hours. It's, it's been nice for me for sure. It's a lot, <laughs> a lot lower stress than years past. Yeah. Nice. We have, a um, you know, going back to getting ready for hunting season, there's like certain things showing up at my door to try. We've, we've talked before about like the insoles and the comparisons we're doing there. We've had stuff showing up for that. I've been hiking and definitely excited to share stuff about that. Steve, you're getting pictures from your rifle that's getting put together. That's going to kill a sheep this fall. There's all kinds of new stuff in there we'll be talking about, but one of the little things I just wanted to mention, uh, there's a, literally just a couple guys up in Michigan who started a company that's just called hard side hydration. Uh, I've never met them, but they're EXO customers. They'd reached out, sent me a prototype and then just recently delivered. They, they have a product and a website now. Uh, and the, the idea of it is to take a standard Nalgene lid, but make it compatible for a drinking tube. Um, which at first I'm like, man, what's the, like, what's the place or the use case for that? But then I received it and started playing with it and it's convenient, man. Like if you like the idea of having a, a, a Nalgene bottle, like in your pack and the side, but one of the things I've noticed when I've run on Nalgene's in the past is I tend not to drink as much simply because I have to reach back, get the Nalgene out, open the cap, take a drink. Like it's just a little more work than grabbing a drinking tube. And, uh, this kind of solves that problem where you, you get like kind of the conveniences of a Nalgene in terms of, uh, filling things up and, and having that, but you can use a bladder tube now. So just wanted to kind of throw them uh, a shout out cause it's a cool product, but just a couple of hunters who are getting it put together and we have no, you know, affiliation or don't make anything off of, uh, having you guys check it out, but just want to give them a shout out. So it's just hard side hydration. Uh, and I'll leave a link in the show notes to that. If you guys, uh, if that idea sounds good to you. So 
Yeah, that um, on the death hike this year was the first year I've ever taken uh, an algae instead of a water bladder. And you said definitely you have to be um, <laughs> like I made everyone in my group be the person like every time we stop, I'm like, hey, pull my algae out for me, you know, yeah. um, but uh, it is nice. I mean, you can you when you do drink, you can drink a lot more water and, and that application um, specifically on the death hike where you need to be consuming a lot of water. It was it's really nice because it's hard to chug you know, half a liter of water through a drinking tube. Uh, mm-hmm. The opposite, like you said, though, what these guys did is, it, yeah, it's hard to access an algae sometimes. So having that drinking tube there to take little sips as you're going, um, like I have, uh, um, well, actually it's the opposite. Never mind. I was thinking from my, in my mountain biking experience, I, I started out with a drinking tube, but what I didn't like about the drinking tube was that uh, you're, you know, you're continuing to pedal up the hill. And so you're, you basically got to, close your mouth around the tube and drink and you're yes. not breathing for, you know, 10 seconds, 20 seconds, whatever it is with. So then I switched to water bottles. Like squirting that, uh, it. Yeah, basically um, that uh, uh, you can just continue to breathe and just keep your rhythm and, and not lose your uh, heart rate and stuff like that. So, or elevate your heart rate. Cause you're not breathing, but um, yeah, lots of different ways to drink water and just find what works for you. Yeah. Cool. Um, got a question that I, I don't know. We've chatted much about this and it's something that I've thought about as I've uh, been on hunts with folks and have been invited to hunts. But this guy wrote in and says, I will be joining a friend at his Montana elk base camp for a few days during September's archery season. I thought it might be helpful to hear you guys discuss how to be a great guest at someone else's hunting camp. What are some do's and don'ts? Any provisions to bring that would be especially welcomed? That's a great question. And, uh, I think like the fact that he's asking this question already means he's off to a good start. Like he has a, a good attitude. He wants to be there. He wants to be helpful. Doesn't want to be a burden. Doesn't want to show up and, you know, expect everyone to do everything for him. Uh, but he wants to be there and, you know, kind of contribute to camp as you will. But, um, yeah. So first thing first, like, I think your attitude's in the right place and that's ultimately what's going to matter more than any specifics, I think. Uh, cause your good attitude is going to lead to some good actions, but what to you, Steve, like what comes to mind before I dive into some thoughts I had, um, just being helpful around camp. Right. So chop firewood, start fires, help clean dishes, help cook. Um, and, and he's a newbie hunter. Did he phrase that that way? I got the impression. I don't know that he okay. said specifically. Yeah. yeah. So maybe right, let's assume he's relatively new to hunting and going with some guys that have been around, you know, just, ask questions, pay attention, you know, don't be like overbearing. Um, listen when, when you do ask questions. Um, I think another thing, just show up like, you know, one of my goals, and it's not just hunting, but in life is just be self-sufficient. Right. So I've always got, um, have just everything you need to basically take care of yourself. Um, so that you're not a burden on the other people in camp and, um, yeah, just show up and be helpful. And I'm sure, You'll be welcome back. Yeah. Well, thanks, Steve. You stole all the you stole all the points that I had. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're like minded. Right. No, it was literally like be helpful. Do any sort of like quote unquote chores you can. As you said, Steve, chop firewood, cook, do whatever you can. Anything that needs to be done, try and do it. Uh, even in the little things. Um, and then I would have had down there be self sufficient as well. So bring your own everything. Like it's cool to to coordinate. Hey, do I need this or do you need that? And 
Um, I've even been apprehensive, Steve, like times I've flown out and hunted with you of, I try and bring everything in. So I'm like, no, don't bring this. Don't bring that. I have it. And I feel weird doing that. But uh, yeah, I think the default mindset is be self-sufficient, take care of yourself and then go above and beyond that to be as helpful as you can for the group. Um, and then, yeah, you touched on it there, Steve, it's really important, especially if you're trying to learn. Yes. Ask questions. But then there's like, to me, there's like two points to that. Don't ask too many questions. And then when you do ask questions, actually shut up and listen. Um, you know, it's, it's not helpful to ask questions and then cut somebody off and like jump in, right? Like if you're there to learn, then ask the question, but shut your mouth and like hear what somebody has to say. And then I think there can be a balance of asking too many questions where it's like pestering. So I wouldn't be afraid to ask questions or even stupid, what you may think be like basic or stupid questions, but just make sure that you're not like constantly peppering people. Right. Um, but yeah, again, going back to your attitude, I think it's in a good, in a good place. Just try be helpful, be self-sufficient uh, and ask good questions and then shut up and listen. You have guys to have a good time for sure. One question we got was, do you guys use a certain program or layout for creating your gear lists? Uh, do you use any tools such as Lighter Pack, Excel, Google Sheets, etc.? These guys go on to say, I've tried a few different online ones and have tried to create my own, but haven't come up with something that really displays all the critical information and considerations in the best way. Maybe you guys could share a template file for listeners to use. It's a great question. Great topic. We actually uh, here soon within the next week or so are going to have like kind of another A to Z gear list podcast coming out. And then along with that, we will post over on the EXO site um, some of our gear list items as well as kind of how we organize that. I think, you know, there, there are great tools out there. He mentioned lighter pack. Um, if, if you guys are hearing that, don't know what that is. It's a, it's a cool website where you can basically create structure, uh, gear lists, and it helps you have categories and see weights per category per item. And then obviously total pack weight. What's neat about that site is you can easily share it. So you can go in and create your custom gear list and then just basically have a custom link where you can share that with other people. Um, and kind of have that a little bit of collaboration, things like that. I use, uh, used to use Excel back in the day, use Google Sheets now, which is obviously kind of the same thing. Um, and just kind of have my own preference. And I think that's part of what you'll run into here is there's no one right way to do this. And different guys want to structure things differently, want to have different pieces of information, different categories, what have you. So the way that I do it, um, I'll share it when we put that EXO um, blog post up next week uh, and you guys can use it, copy it, do whatever you want to do there. But again, that's just my way. Um, so yeah, th there'll be more to come on that here very, very soon. Um, obviously, again, tune into the podcast. And then once again, I mentioned this a, a couple of times recently, but if you guys that haven't yet, uh, if you don't receive our emails, I would just encourage you to do that because things outside the podcast, such as this gear list and blog and what have you. Uh, does get sent out via email. So if you're not uh, an XO insider, go to xomountgear.com forward slash newsletter to do that. Um, and yeah, you'll see much more coming on that stuff very soon. One thing, Steve, as I thought about spreadsheets, I'm, I'm analytical by nature. You know that? <laughs> um, no. But I've almost become 
less analytical with my gear lists. I, a, cause I think I'm uh, more comfortable with what I have and what I use. And I'm not as critical, like in terms of trying to figure things out, like I just feel like stuff's dialed, but I've also realized you can, a spreadsheet can be theoretical. Your gear on your back is actual and there can be a difference there. I've seen many guys who have this perfectly clean, beautiful gear list with a nice light pack weight. But then in all reality, when they hit the trail, their packs heavier because they end up throwing in stuff they don't account for. Right. Which is almost a good thing to keep yourself accountable of like, if I said this in my gear list, that this is what I have and this is what I need, I should really be questioning the things that I'm going to throw in my pack at the last minute that aren't on my list and really question, do I actually need that? Cause on my list, I said I didn't. Right. So, um, that's one like kind of interesting point on this that I see is guys, it's easy to make things clean, light and all that on a spreadsheet. And then what go actually goes in your pack can be different. Yeah. Yeah. For me, I had, well, we used to do this. We had, a when we shipped out a pack, we had this card that one side said, thank you. And and uh, on the other side was what we called the XO essentials list, right? And that's kind of how my gear list has always been scheduled is there's the essentials. Like these are the items that I have to have on every hunt. And if I forget one of these, then things could, you know, suck, right? Or <laughs> just be missing something that's critical. And then you had all the other, you know, there's 10 to 20 items that kind of varied by hunt. And a lot of that I would do just kind of in my head, right? like, okay, it's late season mule deer. I need this, this, and this that's different from early season mule deer or it's elk. And um, a lot of that I kept in my head and I've worked over the really the last few years of building out. I kind of have like a master list now that is basic gear, the, the essential gear. Right. And then I have like an item for clothing and underneath clothing is late season clothing. Then I have a whole column of optional. Then I have a column of rifle hunt or bow hunt. Uh, then mule, mule deer or elk. Um, and then, yeah, I think that's most of the columns and then like a first aid column or something like that. Um, so it's definitely, I've broken it out more. And then I have basically the master list that then I go through. And as I'm checking items off, you know, loading up my pack, sometimes it's, you know, I check it off cause it's, it's an item that I know I don't need for that specific hunt, but it seemed to serve me better than what I used to do of having the kind of the core list. And then off the top of my head, I would remember the items for that hunt. Like one, like one thing I had a stupid example is a hat. Like a hat was never on my list, but it's something I pack on every single hunt. And, and now I've got that in there, you know? So some of the things that I just took for granted that, like you said, it's, you've got this nice, beautiful little list and then, but there are real and realistic situations. There's more stuff you're packing. Right. Cool. Yeah. Much more to come on that guys soon, both on the podcast. Uh, and then also being able to see kind of the lists and the template that we use for sure. So stay tuned on that. Um, another good question from a listener. Uh, he writes in and says, I have a used bow that seems to shoot well enough, but I am tempted to spend money on a fancy new setup. Do I chase the quote unquote new and shiny or become better with what I have? Although this question is in reference to my bow, I guess you could apply it to many other categories. Super solid question. Um, there's no one right answer here. I think it just depends. He says he has a used bow and he seems to shoot well enough. I don't know what that means to you. Like, do you shoot well enough? Or are you trying to get better? 
And if you are trying to get better, do you really think equipment's the difference or is it the time that you're investing? Right. And maybe it's not, if it is equipment, maybe it's not your bow, but maybe it's your sight or your rest or your release aid or something around the bow itself. Um, is, you know, how we phrase the question, do I chase the, the new and shiny or become better with what I have? I would say by default, most of us don't use the full capabilities or aren't limited in our potential by equipment. It's more in our knowledge and our skills and our application of all that. So by default, no, don't chase the new and shiny and yes, become better with what you have because I don't, you're probably not limited in your capabilities at this point there that can happen. <laughs> Most guys are tended to chase the new and shiny because they want something new and shiny, which I get Been there, done that still tempted to do it. Um, yeah, I remember like going back, Steve, when I was on, um, you know, like pro staff with elite, like it sounds fun to get a new bow every year, but it's actually terrible. Um, <laughs> like, yeah. It's a pain in the butt because you get really comfortable with something and then you give it up. You have to deal with setting up a new bow, getting more comfortable with that bow again, what have you. So for me, it's it, more and more I try and stick with, and this is especially true of your weapon um, just because it's such an important part of you and your confidence and your routine and familiarity and performance under pressure and all that. I'm much less inclined to make changes there when I am comfortable and confident. So you, I think knowing you, Steve, like that's going to be a huge part of it is confidence, right? Yeah. I mean, can't overstate confidence kills. Um, in my opinion, if you're buying a new, if you've got a five-year-old bow and you're buying a new bow thinking it's going to help you kill an animal this year, that's just on its face, like absurd, right? (laughs) There's not much that's changed in bows, uh, over the last five years that's going to help you kill an animal. That being said, um, a couple of years ago, I gave like, it was a Hoyt RX one to a buddy of mine that, um, he, uh, his older bow was probably like a 2004 2005 Hoyt and in that scenario right you jump forward 16 17 years yeah the the new bow like better let off smoother draw quieter faster like there's going to be some performance games there that may or may not help him kill an animal but definitely is not hurting right um so i would say depending on how far back his how old his bow is things have changed but if it's within i mean really I'd say 2010 or later. And it was back then was a high quality bow. You really, there's going to be some comfort things. Speed hasn't really improved that much. They've just gotten a little bit more efficient. So smoother draws, quieter, things like that, less vibration. But yeah, in the end, like none of it, it's not going to help you kill an animal uh, flat out. So the, what's going to help you kill an animal is, is practice, practice under situations. Um, I really like the, uh, Oh, the article Josh Kirshner did on the website there of like that first arrow, make it count. Right? Mm-hmm. Like I do that a lot. I'll, I'll go out and, uh, especially like going camping this weekend. I'm not bow hunting this year, but in years past, I'll take a 3d target up camping. And you know, if the kids were taking a nap, I'd just like throw a target out and then walk like 360 around it and just give myself one arrow, right? Like, all right, I'm at 45 yards, one arrow, I better kill this animal, you know, and then just constantly change that. That's a good way to kind of test yourself and practice and 
I would try to visualize with that one arrow, like, all right, I'm, I've stuck down on a buck. And I mean, this sounds silly, but you can kind of almost amp up your, like get a, a little bit of panic and, and, um, excitement, right? Like just by thinking about that, that's a 200 inch mule deer standing there and you got to make this shot count and get your heart rate up a little bit and then execute the shot. And I think that type of practice is infinitely more valuable than, you know, you got a four-year-old bow and you want to buy a brand new one because it looks, you know, cool, new, shiny. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd say in general, it's, you know, we obviously talk about gear in the podcast a lot. Hunters are super guilty of kind of always wanting something like it's like the next best latest greatest whatever but anymore as i'm like almost everything i'm buying or looking to change in my gear setup i'm like purposely in my mind keeping longevity in mind um you know i want stuff that's quality stuff that will last and honestly i just kind of over like dealing with changes all the time and i just <laughs> want like this is what i have this works great i love it kind of done. Like for me, my quilt comes to mind, like my catabatic quilt of I'm literally as happy with that thing now as I was the day I got it years ago. Right. And it's like, you can go chase specs and do all kinds of other stuff, but I'm like, I don't have the time for that. Like, I'm just, I really like it. I use it for everything. It does the job. Quality's great. And it's really nice not having to worry about it, you know, or right. wasting time, like buying stuff as fun as that is, especially in the off season, right? Like you get bored, you want to look for new stuff, but anymore, I just like want to find stuff and stick with it. Yeah. I would agree with that. And the things like a bow that takes a lot of uh, time and investment on your part to get dialed still like to me, like plug and play items that like a, you could just really easily swap out a quilt. Uh, yeah. I guess you, you're like you said, to your point of, how's this going to perform? There's a little bit of worry about that. Like, you, you know, you've taken that quilt, you know, from zero degrees on the death hike this year to uh, beautiful sunny days, you know, out hunting in September and know it's going to perform for you. So there's a lot to be said for going into hunt, having the confidence that no matter what the temperature is, you're going to be warm and comfortable. Yeah. Last one uh, for this one, this question came up and it's like one of those I'll call it a trivial like, topic. Like it was something I never would think to talk about. Uh, but the question came up. I'm like, ah, oh, this guy's got a point. It'd be kind of fun to think through. Uh, he says, I see flagging tape on a lot of gear lists. I understand the point of flagging tape, or at least I think I do. But my question is, do you guys actually use it? I was going to purchase some for my gear kit, but started to realize that I don't know when or how I would use it. I fully understand having a fail-safe way to retrace steps but what application is flagging tape mainly used for? I could see marking a path to a kill site, possibly for easy return. But uh, I'm just curious about how the, how you guys use it, is I don't feel like anyone's continuously dropping flagging tape everywhere you go. Also, are there any recommendations on flagging tape or does just the cheap stuff from Amazon work? I thought this was interesting, mainly because it brings up this point He's saying he sees other people use this or include it on their gear lists, but he doesn't under necessarily understand why. And I think that alone is a great question. Um, just because everybody else is doing it doesn't mean you should do it. And I do think many people tend to use things because they think they're supposed to, right? Or at least consider purchasing something because other people like going back to conversations we've had on spotting scopes. I've realized more and more 
dealing with a lot of guys and especially the guys who are trying to like figure out what's the best budget spotting scope is really, do you guys, do you even need a spotting scope or are you getting one? Cause you think you need one or cause you see other people using one. Right. And so maybe your money is much better spent elsewhere. Maybe you don't need a spotting scope. Maybe this guy, he doesn't need flagging tape. Um, flagging tape is interesting on a, a super minor level because I tend to include some in my kill kit, but I also tend to not use it much. And I'll talk about how I use it, but it is one of those interesting things that it literally weighs nothing and takes up no space. So there's kind of no negative to having some, right? Um, if you're not packing a whole giant roll of it and you just want 10 feet of it or 20 feet of it or what have you, like there's kind of no penalty there. Um, it can be tucked away, no weight penalty, no problems. I typically only use it when blood trailing, um, if I need to, right? So I like the visual. If I'm blood trailing an animal and the blood's kind of spotty or it's thick country, yes, you can turn like on X and mark your track or what have you. But when you end up zigging and zagging looking for blood, the digital track you're leaving is a giant zigzag mess that I found to not be helpful in some situations or to be more harm than good because it's confusing. So personally, the main way I use flagging tape and I don't always use it, but if I'm on blood, that's kind of spotty or kind of hard to follow or in very thick country, literally flagging where I see blood makes it easy to go down the mountain 40 yards and turn back and easily see the flagging tape and know that was the last spot of blood and then look up behind that and see the, and so you start to piece together that, that crumb trail of actual blood spots, um, using flagging tape. So that's the main way that I use it. It's the reason I tend to have some in my kit. I don't use it a bunch. It can be helpful for other things, right? So if you found some little some little campsite or whatever that you're, you know, you're off trail, you're in the back country, and maybe there's just one little spot you're trying to return to. Yes. Hanging that up could be great. What drives me personally nuts is when I see flagging tape left up though. So anytime I'm putting flagging tape up, I'm certainly doing my best to take it back down. Um, it just is kind of a personal pet peeve to be in the back country and see random flagging tape up. So, uh, that's how I use it. Steve, do you even pack it anymore? I don't, um, to me though, the, yeah, what, what you talked about, I should, right. Like there's, I've been in blood trailing situations where since I haven't been packing it for the last, you know, I don't know, 10 years, basically once cell phone GPS is, I, you know, once I switched to that, it's the, uh, pack and flagging tape just didn't make sense. Right. Like I can uh, at any second, see where exactly where I'm at on a map, the, yeah, the blood trailing situation though, is I've been. I've used, I use a hat, I use a shirt or something like that, that I hang on a limb bush, wherever the last blood was. Cause that's a, you're definitely, you know, if you hunt and it shouldn't, it's not going to take very long within a few years, you're going to have a scenario where even if you hit an animal really well, it's a very minimal blood trail and you're, you know, hands and knees crawling. And, uh, I can definitely see the value of kind of tagging the blood, you know, blood drops, especially as they're spread out 20, 30, 40 yards. And then you can kind of look back and kind of get an idea of the path because animals for the most part tend to follow like a straight line, right? Uh, every once in a while they just turn 90 degrees and 
go a different direction, but um, yeah, definitely having that for blood trailing, I think is valuable. Other than that, yeah, the, like the one time I remember consistently using flagging tape is uh, early on hunting. Uh, we used to hunt up my McCall zone and there was this ridge that we would hunt uh, or yeah, hunt in the evening and then hike out in the dark. And it was this very flat rolling ridge and it was near impossible to get out in the dark without um, turning on your GPS. Like it was just there was just no way to reference because you kind of had to do this big uh, kind of L turn on the ridge and it's just so easy just to slide off one side or the other and think you're going in the right direction. And all of a sudden you'd like be going down, you know, 90 degrees, the wrong way, 180 degrees, the wrong way. Um, and we eventually just flagging tape that Ridge. Uh, and so you could just with reflective flagging tape that a, a headlamp would hit it and you could see and, and fall your way out of there. So um, that's kind of the last time I've used that uh, in any consistent way. Cool. All right, guys. Well, that's a wrap uh, for today. Uh, once again, if you got any questions for us, uh, just send those by email to podcast at xmongear.com. Obviously, as we said, it's July, September's coming quick. We know many of you are excited uh, putting gear together, tactics, all that. We, uh, we're excited about what's coming with the podcast to help with that. So stay tuned. If you haven't yet, hit that subscribe or follow button so that you receive future episodes automatically. And we'll talk to you soon.